0: Hello and welcome back to the Long History Shot. We have been following Ashok's story over the last few episodes. And in this part, we shall dive into his edicts, which give us a first-person account of Ashok's own ideas and beliefs. To understand Ashok's edicts, one has to read them in context of the ideas and concepts contained within Buddhism. For after all, it was these ideas that made a deep impression on his mind so deep that he installed his edicts across the subcontinent, some even thousands of kilometers far away from his capital city of Patliputra. Ashok seems to have felt this strong urge to share the story of his personal transformation and more importantly, his idea of a society and kingdom that adhered to the values of the Dhamma. Therefore, it does not come as a surprise that the word Dhamma occurs more than 90 times in the 30-odd edicts that are attributed to Ashok. Even the composers of the Rugveda have used the word Dharma more sparingly than Ashok has. Ashok makes references not only to the Dhamma but also to Buddhist texts like in that edict at Bharat, Rajasthan. He makes inscriptions in places where he donates to the memory of the Buddha and also other significant personalities from Buddhist history such as the monk Kanakamuni. In these pilgrimage sites, Ashok even donated pillars and stupas to honour their position and the role they played in the spread of Buddhism. No wonder that his patronage continues to be celebrated in Buddhism and especially in the Buddhist legends that were written centuries after him. What distinguishes Ashok is that unlike many rulers in history, who sometimes took up a new religion and then turned into zealots who thought nothing of expanding their kingdoms under the banner of a holy war. Ashok did something entirely unique instead and which was unprecedented and never again repeated after him in history. In place of deploying force to convert his subjects to the king's new faith, Ashok engaged with them through a series of messages that he published on large stone surfaces and pillars. These inscriptions, known as edicts, spoke of his own transformation and the principles that seemed to have stood out the most to him from this new order. Kindness towards all living beings, generosity, ...limiting expenses on fruitless rituals and festivities, these were some of the core beliefs that the Buddha had preached. And Ashok carried forward his message to the people within and even outside his borders. Ashok instructed his governors and in some cases even the heads of the Buddhist Sangha to be liberal... ...when it came to accepting diverse views from within the Sangha and even from those belonging to other sects and religions... He comes across in the edicts as a sensitive ruler who felt a moral responsibility to make such changes happen in society and to make these new concepts more acceptable. He chose to lead by his personal example. Let us look at some early edicts of Ashok that speak about his own journey of transformation. He refers to this journey as Pakanta in Prakrit or Prakranta when translated into Sanskrit. This particular edict that is known in history as one of the minor edicts tells us a lot more about Ashok's initiation and his journey as a Buddhist. The original edict in Ashok's own language goes somewhat like this. Devanam Pie ah, satirekani adhatyani vasani yau sumi upasake no chubadham pakante samachare satireke yau me sanghe upeti. बाद हम चमेम पकंते से इमायम वेलायम जंबुदीपासी अमीसा देवा समना मानुसे ही से दानी निसा कटा पकमसे एसफले फले नोही इम महतिने व पपोतवे खुदकेन अपी पकममिने विपुले पी चकिए स्वगे अराधय तवे इतायच अथायच इम खुदकाच उदाराच पकमंतुती I am sure that was totally incomprehensible because after all what I just read was a 2300 year old language. And this has survived only thanks to Ashok's edicts. So let me break that down and translate line by line so that you can understand what Ashok was attempting to share with his audience. Devanam Ah. This means Devanam Piye, which is Ashok's name, says thus. It's a very typical way in which edicts used to start in those times, not only in India but even in faraway places like Babylon, uh, West Asia, most of the edicts that were written by rulers like Cyrus or even those who came after him always used to start by saying The King so and so says thus. Ashok follows in the same tradition and says Devanam Pie aha, Satirekani vasani yau sumi upasake This means a little over two and a half years ago I became an upasak. No chubadham pakante but my initiation did not progress much. A little over a year ago, after I entered the Sangha, the progress of my journey has taken place. Now these are two important terms in the opening lines of the minor edict. The first one is Upasak. Unfortunately, it has been loosely translated by most of the early historians as a lay follower or novice, which grammatically isn't incorrect. But in the Buddhist context, the term Upasak gains far greater significance than just a lay follower. The Sangha specifically chose to create a certain class or a certain category within the Buddhist order known as the Upasaka. And this is because those who desired to follow the Buddha's prescribed path, but were unable to commit themselves entirely in the same way as a monk or a bhikshu did, the Sangha did not want to make it impossible for them to have a place in the Buddhist order. They were typically people who ran households, businesses and even kingdoms. Their practical lives limited the extent to which they could follow the Sangha's prescribed rules and at the same time the Sangha did not also want to lose them, for eventually the Sangha's own existence depended on the patronage of these people. Therefore the idea of an Upasak was floated, and those who chose to follow the Buddha's Dhamma without entering the Sangha on a permanent basis could excuse themselves from some of these rules, which were practically impossible for a householder to follow. However, there were some basic rules such as showing kindness towards all living beings, being generous towards the needy and the learned, learning and acquiring wisdom and so on. The upasaks were also welcome to spend time within the Sangha if they wished to learn from one of the teachers and they could do so for the time that their busy lives permitted them. The same was applicable also to the Upasikas or the female followers. Usually, these were women who followed their husbands on this path. But there were also women who independently chose to become Upasakas. Therefore, when Ashok says Upasak, he refers to having taken up the Dhamma as a proselyte who would do all the things that were possible within the realms of practicality and as prescribed for an Upasak. The second term that has gone a bit badly translated is Pakante or Prakranta in Sanskrit. This has often been read as zeal, which brings out a feeling of passion, fervor or even blind commitment to a faith. However, prakranta has a different meaning. It means the commencement either of a journey or a brave undertaking or it means the initiation of something. In Ashok's case, perhaps prakranta meant the start of his journey as an upasak. Therefore, when Ashok says, my prakranta or my pakanta did not increase or gather pace, he is trying to say that he could not bring himself to commit to the vows of an upasak quite easily. However, he adds that after he entered or stayed in the sangha over the last one year, his journey made more progress. Maybe he was trying to share the challenges that anyone else would also encounter once they chose to follow this new dhamma. It isn't hard to imagine why he would say so, because giving up a non-vegetarian lifestyle, not subjecting animals to laborious tasks, abandoning violence even as a king, exchanging sensual pleasures for more spiritual practices, these things have never been easy for anyone, and much less for an emperor. Some of these continue to be big challenges even in today's world where people constantly try to adopt nonviolent lifestyles like a vegan diet or attend meditation workshops perform vipassana and they try complete abandonment of their sensual lifestyles ashok also tries to bring out the fact that the sangha plays an important role in supporting such a choice perhaps the mentorship and support of a monk helped people internalize such ideas and find the real meaning for adopting such a life Instead of simply imitating their neighbors' new-found faith or new-found fad, the next part of the edict talks of the change that was taking place in the country, in the society around him. Say imayo velayo, amisa deva samanad Manusehi Se While in the past gods and men were separated in Jambudvipa, now they are no longer distinct. This line has puzzled many a reader, for it sounds mystical for sure. However, again in the Buddhist context, its meaning becomes more clear. Before the Buddha's Dhamma influenced a vast number of people in this country, the most common idea of gods or divinity was a supernatural power that lived beyond the humans and existed in various mythical androgynous forms in people's minds. Take the example of Indra who was the god of rain or thunder, Surya, who was the sun god, or Varun, who was the wind god. To appease such gods who were invisible and yet so closely related with common human needs, the surest way was conducting rituals and sacrifices. These sacrifices were expected to solve not just practical issues, but also grant the sponsor a place in heaven owing to his piety. The Buddha's revolutionary thought was centered around how humans could rid themselves of sorrow or pain that resulted from emotional and practical situations in life. They could do so by focusing on consciousness or self-awareness. As per the Buddha, one who could accept these realities of life and not let them, however, define one's life was destined to be free from the cycles of birth and death. In a way, the Buddha turned people away from expecting a miracle to happen in the skies above them and instead examined their own consciousness for attaining a heaven-like state here on this very planet, in this very world. Ashok says further, phale, the fruit of prakrama or commencing such a journey is thus. Nohi mahateneva chakie papotave." It is not reserved only for the Mahataiva or the high-born. Even the shudra or the low-born can attain heaven by undertaking this path or this journey. Now this was a revolutionary idea for 3rd century BCE in India. In a time when society was constructed on the basis of castes and varna, an emperor giving license to even those considered as Shudra or low-born was not only revolutionary, but it would have ruffled many a feather. At the same time, it would have also given those on the lower rungs of society a new voice to claim their place alongside those counted in the higher sections of society. After all, the king himself was endorsing the idea of the Dhamma being open to all. The other message this line also delivers is that one need not have special abilities to taste the fruit of this path. As long as they practiced it sufficiently, both the high and the low in society could find equal fulfillment. Ashok continues further on this point. Etaya cha athaya iam savane. This has been said to explain the following meaning. Khuddaka cha udara cha pakamantuti antapi cha janantu chirathitike cha hotu May the low and the high people commence this journey and know that the path and its results are everlasting. Iyam cha athe vadhisiti, vipule cha vadhisiti, di adhyam pi cha vadhisiti, the wealth grows grows greatly and even many times over. Here the reference to wealth is not literal, but seems to point to the spiritual transformation that one can enjoy by undertaking such a journey. Ashok probably also meant to distinguish it from the material wealth that was otherwise the common objective. Amongst Ashok's early edicts are also a set of inscriptions that were discovered in the Barabar caves in Bihar. These caves were inhabited by Ajivic ascetics. But despite the animosity or disagreement between the Buddhists and the Ajiviks, Ashok's inscription here talks about him having donated these beautifully sculpted caves to the Ajivik sect. One of the edicts is by someone from his family. It is not clear if it was one of his children or wives, but they also talk of donating another cave to save the Ajivik ascetics, the inconvenience caused by rising levels of water during the monsoons. This early edict tells us that while Ashok had become an Upasak or a new follower in the Buddhist sect, he did not hold anything against other sects and was still donating openly to these faiths. At some of the sites, the scribes who inscribed this Upasak edict have also left behind somewhat of a riddle. They have used numerals to write the number 256, which is one of the first instances as well of numbers being found in an Indian script. But what isn't clear is whether they meant that Ashok made these tours or these pilgrimages 256 years after the Buddha, or whether Ashok had been on tour for 256 nights. Most scholars agree with the latter, But this still remains open to interpretation. What it does tell us is that Ashok was making a tour of his kingdom while these edicts were being inscribed. Moving ahead in the next episode, we shall talk about how Ashok gradually transformed his ideas into actions and starting no further than in his own household. So look forward to the next chapter in Ashokan Edicts on the long history shot Until then, goodbye, keep listening, keep exploring.